earth and all that's in it is for you to manage and to do it well like I do it well. And to take this little corner, this little Eden, this little garden in the corner of Eden and spread this garden over the whole earth. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, fill the earth with your descendants who should be holy like you are. That's the image that so that eventually when, when, the, when the story is all said and done, earth would be full of holy people who had recreated Eden, in a sense, all over the entire globe, subduing the earth and making what they God, God says, here's the template, here's Eden, a beautiful garden, and I want you to do this to the whole earth. But we know that sin comes in and ruins that. And with sin came judgment. But God does not leave, God doesn't say, well, my plan doesn't work. My plan didn't work. Man was able to thwart my plan. Satan snuck into the garden. Adam was supposed to rule the, rule, the, rule, rule the animals. He did not subdue the serpent. He let the serpent talk to his wife, and he gave in to temptation. But God didn't say, well, you know, what's plan B? In his agenda, in his plan, he is working out his purposes to make the earth as he always intended it to be, which is an earth full of holy people. And so we're well familiar with the Genesis account, and we're familiar with the judgment account. And I'd like to just go back to the last two chapters of the Bible, to Revelation 21 and 22, so that we can see that although creation was part of his sovereign domain, and so is judgment, his end goal for history is in Revelation 21 and 22. And we're less familiar with this probably than we are with the early chapters of Genesis. I'd just like to read portions of 21 and the first few verses of 22. This is God's end goal. He will accomplish an earth made and filled with people who reign as Adam was to have done all along. He says in Revelation 21, this is New King James, bear with me if you're a little bit different. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. What's the geographic setting for this whole two chapters is right there in the new heavens and the new earth. This is, this is what we should be picturing. This is earth, a new earth that, that's being talked about. Where does God dwell with his people? He dwells with them here on the new earth. And he goes on to say, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I'm going to summarize the next few verses. The next few verses talk about the New Jerusalem, which we often visualize as the streets of gold, heaven, this, this heavenly city. That, that heavenly city has come down to this new earth, in which he goes into detail to describe. But picking it up again in verse 22, But I saw no temple in this new city, this new Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, 
but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Notice that tree of life connection to the early chapter of Genesis. The bookends of the Bible here. This tree of life bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, as it was cursed in Genesis, now it's taken away. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there, they need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And so you see God's sovereignty in creation to make a world filled with humans in his image. And then because of sin, he brings in judgment. But in the end, he wins. He gets his new earth. He gets an earth redeemed, full of holy and perfected people who reign with him, just like Adam was to have reigned there in the garden. And we see all the good things of creation are back again. The tree of life, this, this water, like these, these four rivers in Genesis. But God is there, just like he was there with Adam in the garden. Now he's here with Adam in this, or the, 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 new, the new creation in this new city. And this new city, this, this new Jerusalem, it's just the, and we can think of it as just the capital of the new earth. This is not the whole entirety of the new earth. This is just the city, this huge cubicle city in the new earth. And so I want to establish like God's plan and project for the ages. And so that as we get down in the weeds, as we start to deal with nations and ups and downs and Putin and uh, Ukraine guy, um, uh, or, or, or Biden and Trump, all this other stuff, we can't lose sight of the big picture. I am a detail guy. I, I often get lost in the weeds. And I guess that makes me good in some things, but really poor at other things. And one of the things that makes me poor at is keeping a big, big-term perspective in the day-to-day grind of life. But this is what God is doing. God is taking my world, and Satan's not going to win. Creation is groaning, longs to be set free. When does creation get set free? It gets set free when mankind is fully redeemed. Not just his spirit and soul redeemed, but when his body is fully set free from the curse of sin, then he gets his dominion back. And the curse is lifted, which had been placed under his dominion at the fall. And this is what God is doing through his sovereignty and his control in all of creation. So I want to establish, too, that God does not just have this big-term picture, but all throughout the the workings out of his purposes in history. Everything that happens is a foreshadowing of the ultimate. And so throughout all of the Bible, and even after the Bible time, you see judgment and renewal, judgment and renewal, judgment and renewal. And each one of these things is relevant to the sin that happened and God working out his purposes in that sin. But it's also a constant reminder of the ultimate judgment and the ultimate renewal. I heard a sermon not long ago and just said, you know, every day, we, we lay down and we go to sleep and it's like a rehearsal for our death. And every morning the sun comes up and it's a rehearsal for resurrection. So even into our little de- details of life, there are these things built in. Death, renewal. Death and judgment, judgment and renewal. On and on, on and on, all through scripture. And so we have a tendency to look at the stories of the Old Testament as isolated events or the things that have happened with Napoleon or Hitler. It's just like, world's chaotic, nations rise, nations fall. God is working out his purposes to accomplish things. And we don't understand, we don't have that Old Testament prophecy that we'll get to hopefully some of these events in the Old Testament where we say, God says specifically in this situation, this is what I was doing. And this is why this happened. Well, we don't get that post-biblical. We don't get the revelation. It's like, why did Hitler rise? Well, we can guess, we can figure some things out, but we really don't know. 
But the principles are established that God is working out his purposes. And there's so many Old Testament stories that illustrate that in history that we should follow that, um, that paradigm as we move forward. Not always able to say, I know why this happened. But big picture, I do know why this happened. It's because God's working on his purposes to accomplish this new creation and the redemption of humanity. So just, to, just think in your mind, what happens, this judgment and recreation, where, where do we see patterns? What happens when Abel is killed by, by Cain? We see death there. But what does God do? He brings in Seth. Abel's killed, death. And, and, and not judgment, but consequences of sin kind of judgment. Abel dies. But then God brings in Seth. So there's death and there's renewal. What happens after the flood? The world's wiped out. We're down to eight people. What does God do? He says to Noah almost verbatim what he said to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God didn't even wipe out the animals. He wiped out most of the animals, but he said, you know, the animals are important to my definition of what earth is. So I'm going to preserve the animals so that there's animals left over and they can repopulate the earth. So you see almost complete destruction in the flood. And then you see renewal after the flood. You see, um, when, when, Egypt, when Israel was suffering in Egypt, in, in exile there for 400 years in Egypt, they enter into a promised land full of milk and honey. It's almost like in a sense like, like returning to Eden. After the years in the desert, after the years in, in slavery in Egypt, the years in the desert and the years of wandering, entry into the promised land is like a renewal. Um, post-exile, they sin grievously against God. God sends them, he's long-suffering, he's patient, but he deals with them. He sends them into exile in Babylon, Assyria, primarily the Babylon because they don't really return from Assyria. But with the Babylonian return, post-exilic, what happens? They come back into the land. The temple's built again. The walls of Jerusalem are built again. And so there's this, this pattern of judgment and punishment and yet renewal. And in the end, it's always renewal. That's always the end, end of these stories. We see this in the New Testament where we're born into sin. We're born dead. We're born dead in trespasses and sins. But what, God is, what does God do? He renews us. He makes us new creatures in Christ. There's a new humanity, as it were. And someday we will get our dominion, as it says in Romans 8. And so there's this, this theme of judgment and recreation throughout Scripture, and I just want to lay that as a, as a foundation. Um, God has the right to rule because of his creation. Let me just read. I mean, the, problem, the biggest problem this morning was trying to find out, just choose which passages to use. And I could just, I could just read, stood up here this morning and just read the entire Old Testament. Uh, because that's what he's establishing is his right to reign and his right to intervene in the, in the affairs of men. So I, there's, for time's sake, I can only hit some of these. Let me just read Psalm 2, establishing God's right to rule over the nations. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying. And we read this in the context of, you know, burning down pro-life pregnancy centers right now. Do you, I mean, do we need, this is, this is, this is a, a street-level reporting. Why are the nations raging? Let's, let, let's figure this out. Why are they burning down abortion clin, uh, pro, pro-life clinics right now? Because the rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord and saying, against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king... On my holy hill of Zion, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. What is God doing? He's laughing. We don't, we don't get that aspect of God a whole lot. This is, it may be the only time we get where God laughs, and it's at the, it's, it, it, the foolishness of man plotting against. What is that Shia Lin song? He says like it's like somebody with a super soaker trying to capture Spain. I don't listen to a lot of Christian rap, but I've done some in the past, but that one analogy there is really good of somebody with a super soaker, the big squirt gun trying to conquer, conquer an empire, and he was drawing that imagery from Psalm 2 here where these, these impotent men in whose mouth is the breath of life. They have nothing more than the breath I breathe is the only breath I have. And yet I think I can stand up to God's plans and try to thwart them. So that was Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalm thirty-three, ten: the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. Psalm 86, 9, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. Psalm 110 that Pastor Rodney spoke on several months ago, um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I have made your enemies your footstool. God is in absolute and total control of this world and all the nations and governments in it. So that that sort of establishes his right to reign uh, because of his creative power and his, uh, his divinity. But God is sovereign in judgment as well. It is his prerogative to make a world where sin must be judged. And all that he does is tied to his character. If there were a way that he could make a world where sin could just be overlooked, he would have done it. But because we can't say, well, God, it's not fair for you to judge. Why couldn't you make a world where we could do what we wanted, and if we didn't do what you wanted, you would just kind of brush it off and dismiss it? If, God had, if that had been in, in, in keeping with God's character, then he would have done that. But it's not. So it's his prerogative to judge a world where sin must be judged, to make a world where sin must be judged. Abraham recognized this in Genesis 18.22 when God said, Abraham's my friend, I'll, tell, I'll let him know what's going to happen in Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is very grieved because he said, my nephew, who surprisingly, if we read the Old Testament, we wouldn't know this. But thankfully, Peter lets us know that Lot was a righteous man. And Lot's living in Sodom. And he's vexed and he's grieved. And Abraham's concerned that if God destroys Sodom, he's going to destroy a righteous man in his wrath. And Abraham says, God, it's not, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God, it's not right. He's, here's Abraham's arguing with God based on God's character. God, it wouldn't be right for you to destroy a lot in your wrath because he's a righteous man. And so that's why he does this negotiation. What if we find 10 people? What if we find whatever? And in the end, Lot's, Sodom's not spared, but in the end, um, Abraham gets his wish because God gets Lot out of Sodom before he destroys the city. And so that he is the judge of all the earth. Abraham, early on, 2,000 years past creation, he knows that he's the judge of all the earth, and he will do right. He has full control to, to destroy and to punish sin. The Old Testament history is the story of God judging one nation by another nation, and in turn, judging that second nation for their sins against the first nation. And we just see that over and over again. And that continues, I believe, past the Old Testament, New Testament. We don't get the behind-the-scenes look anymore. But God establishes that pattern that he judges one nation who's ungodly with another nation that's ungodly. And he accomplishes his purposes in that first nation, but then judges the second nation for what they did because he holds them responsible for their actions. It seems to be a general pattern. When God sends Israel into the land, one of the last things that Moses does with the people before he dies is to bring them to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And in this last act of corporate Israel on this side of the Jordan, 
they get up there as two people, and they pronounce blessings from one mountain, and they pronounce curses from another mountain. So in Deuteronomy 28, there are 14 verses of blessing. If you do these things, I will bless you, I will bless you, you will be like no other nation, on and on. Just everything, the, the, the ideal kind of world that you want to live in. Deuteronomy 29, 54 verses of cursing. If you do not, if you act wickedly, if you, if you break my law, these things will happen. And you will wish you were never born, in a sense, is what he basically says. But look how patient God was. He eventually brought all those curses to pass. But how many thousands of years he let go before he did. So he is the God. He's a God of judgment, but yet he's a God of mercy. And his judgment is always seen when it's fitting and never before. One of the key verses that I, I go to a lot, it's, a, it's obscure. Let me just turn to Genesis 15 for a second. I know I probably won't get through everything that I'd like to say this morning. Most likely probably won't get through many or, or any of the things that are on the handout, but that's why they're there, so you can follow up later if we don't get a chance to go through them. But in Genesis 15... I think this explains a lot about what's going on in the world in general. So God makes a promise to Abraham about how his people will one day inherit the promised land. Let me see where I want to pick up reading. Verse 13, God says to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. This is a prophecy of the Israelite captivity in Egypt. Why does God put Israel in Egypt for 400 years? Well, for various reasons. Verse 14, And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge, that's Egypt, afterward they will come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace, and you will be buried at a good old age. And this is the key verse I want to get verse 16. But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This tells me that there is some level if it was true for the Canaanites, it's probably true for every nation. There is some threshold that God sets for every nation. And until that threshold is reached, he does not intervene in this violent and destructive judgmental way. Israel was in Egypt because as wicked as Canaan was, and we see this even in the days of Abraham, as wicked as Canaan was, the iniquity was not yet full. It was not yet complete. And it seems to me that that's what God's doing throughout all of human history. Whenever a nation reaches whatever predetermined level of sin and iniquity, that's when God steps in and judges it with another nation. And we look at our country and we wonder, how in the world can he let this go on? Because the iniquity of the United States is not yet reached. And it, it tells me in some way that God's long-suffering and patience is beyond what I can imagine. I cannot fathom that. But again, he's sovereign, and I don't have to worry about these things. But he has a plan. He says, Abraham, you're gonna, your people, they go in at a people of 70 and they come out of a nation of millions in that 400-year period. And they suffer and they're oppressed and they can't understand why they're oppressed for 400 years. But God's doing something miraculous. In, they come in a family, they come out of a nation. And in that time period, he was going to judge Egypt, as he says, but he's also going to judge the Canaanites by the time they come out. Similar, I think, to before the flood, when it becomes, the world becomes so full of violence, God says it's time for a restart. You know, we're going to start over here. Um, the iniquity, the wickedness of the world. And so at some point in the future, we don't know when, this world will have reached its maximum capacity for wickedness. 
or the maximum level which God's going to allow wickedness, and he's going to stop it. But until that time, we will see the rise and fall of nations and rulers. Until he, built, until he brings in um, the, the, the kingdom that will, will last forever in its full and final form. So we see God's sovereignty and judgment. We also see his sovereignty and recreation. It's most clearly seen in the post-flood world of the Old Testament. I've touched that briefly. But even we get that, this sense of recreation and renewal. We see, this, we see, this, we see hints of, of resurrection in the Old Testament. We see Enoch going to heaven without dying. We see uh, when Elisha and Elijah are on the scene... We get the, there's only, the only three examples of true resurrection in the Old Testament are in Elijah and Elisha's stories. And so we see this sense of renewal. It's like, this doesn't fit the pattern of you have sinned and then you're going to die. Um, and these aren't final resurrections. We know that these children died again, um, humanly speaking. But yet there's these glimpses, there's these, this breaking in of renewal and restoration. We can tell that God, in spite of the sin, in spite of all the judgment that we see, in spite of this, the misery and the, the chaos... That, that light continues to break through the darkness and that that's what God's ultimate plan and purpose is, is to make things new and to make things alive. So this is the trajectory. We have promises of the new earth, even in the Old Testament. Uh, we have an eternal kingdom promised in Isaiah 9, 6, and in Daniel. Um, the stone that the builders rejected, the stone comes in and, and crushes the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But this trajectory, each step along the way in the Old Testament and New Testament is an actual judgment for actual sins, but it's also serving as a type of God's final judgment, a picture of God's final judgment and final recreation and restoration. So as best I can summarize in a short period of time, I would say that lays the groundwork for God being sovereign in judgment and in recreation. And what I want to do with the rest of the time is to look at his providence in the nations and in the rulers of these ages in which we live to see how he's working out his overall purpose and judgment of recreation through the nations that he's established. We, I speak for myself, you may not be guilty of this, tend to focus too much on, on secondary causes in life. We tend to focus too much on secondary causes. We look, at the human, we look at the human means of why I have this trouble in my life or what's the problem with America. It's these liberals, it's these wicked people. We forget that there's somebody up here pulling the strings that we can't see. And that's what the whole emphasis of this morning's class is. God is working out his purposes. No matter what the nations of the world think they're doing, God's working out his purposes. You know, Putin invaded Ukraine because he wanted to do this. But Putin really invaded Ukraine because God wanted to do something else that we don't quite know yet. Um, and this is what's really going on in every... The, the election of 2020 or the Supreme Court or, or any, any, any topic you talk about today... Humans are doing it for this reason. God's doing it behind the scenes. He said they are, but doing it for this reason. And we see this most clearly in the death of, death of Christ, where Peter says to the people there in Jerusalem, he says, you know, you, your wicked people did what God had already planned for it to be done. Um, so God's got this plan that's being worked out even through the sins and the arrogance of human leaders. So looking briefly at God's plan for the nations, where do human nations come from? Is this just like a... It would be better if we just had one big world and everybody got along. If we took all our borders down, everybody would be happy, right? That's not the way God put the world together. Acts 17, 26, where do nations come from? They come from God's plan. Um, here Paul is talking in Athens, and he's talking to these Athenians who have an altar built to an unknown God. In case we missed one, 
Uh, we'll put an altar up to him too. And Paul says, you know what, that one that you, you, who's unknown, let me tell you who he is. I'll read 24 to 27 of Acts 17. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he's Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men. So we see one blood, that means there's one human race, or some versions leave out the word blood, but that he's made from one every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. So one human source, one human parent, all the nations. So we're all connected, and yet there's division to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So they should seek the Lord in the hope that he might, they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So where do the nations come from? That's an institution by God. And we kind of see that founding back in Genesis 10 and 11, the Tower of the Babel. When the nations tried to get the, the people of the earth, God said after the flood to Noah, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And if you, I won't, I'll reference it, I won't go back there. In Genesis 10 and 11, the nations say, well, let's build this tower and all get together in case we get dispersed. Well, that's exactly what they were supposed to do was get dispersed. And they didn't want to do that. So they said, let's stick together and let's build this tower. And God says, no, that's not the plan. You're going to be dispersed. And so he confuses the languages. That's where we can't speak the same language. You're most likely not going to be hanging out together very much. And that's this, this lack of language barrier is, begins to create these fragments and these fractures among the peoples. And these nations go, and God spreads them out across the face of the earth. So that's where we see these nations coming from. Um, and God scatters them. This is the origin of nations. And this is not a human institution. This is a divine institution, this idea of nations. Humans, though, being the people that they are, tend to take over nations and think, well, this is my nation. I can do with it as I choose. That's not the way God works in this world. Um, but the neat thing, talking about this judgment and recreation theme, is what do we see at, at Pentecost? We see an undoing of Babel. Instead of the nations not being able to talk, any other, talk to each other, now the apostles stand up and they speak in tongues. And all of a sudden, in the institution of the church, you have the nations coming back together again. Men from Media, Persia, Persia, Africa, and you a whole list of people all throughout the, the, the Mid, Mid, Middle East area, North Africa area. Pentecost is the initial picture of this undoing of Babel where the nations... But they still have their national identity, but they're coming together as the church, God's plan for the ages to restore and to recreate. So that's the origin of human nations, but then God throughout history is constantly involving himself and overruling it. I think we're all familiar, I think it's Proverbs 22.1, that the old uh, phrase that we like to say, the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. As I understand it, the imagery there is these people that would do irrigation, and you have these trenches, and the water would flow down. It's like, today I need to irrigate this field, tomorrow I need to irrigate that field, so we just put a, a gate here at the end of this trench so the water's all diverted that way. And that may be the imagery behind this where God turns the king's heart in whatever direction he chooses. Now, we like to think that, well, that's great. That means if we have a really wicked king or president or governor or prime minister or whoever, that if we really pray, God might turn that king's heart and he might pass good laws. That may be the case, but often in the Old Testament, that's, the, that's exactly the opposite of what it does. Sometimes God turns the heart of the king even into more wickedness. Again, holding him responsible for those actions. But God turns the heart of the king. What does God do to Pharaoh? He hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he could be exalted over Pharaoh. That's Paul's argument from Romans 9. 
So sometimes God turns the king's heart in the wrong direction, humanly speaking, and against God's law, yet still holding him responsible for those actions. Have to maintain these two things, even though our brain wants to try to put them together and say that they're mutually exclusive. But the king's heart is in his hand, and that's where we see through the Old Testament. The king's heart's in his hand. He turns it wherever he wants it to go. And we'll try to get to at least a couple illustrations of that. What is the end of human nations and government? The final human government that we see is in Revelation 18, 17, 18, 19. We see the nation and city of Babylon. Um, there's various ways that people take that, understand that. But certainly, at the very least, it is some, sort, some form of worldwide ungodly government at the, at the end of time. And let me read Revelation 19, 11 to 21. This is the end of human, human rule and rebellion against God. Throughout history, God has been judging one wicked nation with another wicked nation or through hailstones and fire and brimstone. Um, So he's used agents often throughout history, another human agent to judge another human agent, one wicked nation to judge another wicked nation, or sometimes a righteous nation to judge a wicked nation. But at the end of time, God's going to do this without any human intervention. He's going to do it directly himself. So Revelation 19, I'll read 11 to 21. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the feast or the supper of the great God, calling these birds of prey to come and feast on the dead bodies, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, with small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. This is the end of human idolatrous government. This is where, it's, this is where history is headed. Not there yet, but it's coming. So all these judgings of the nations that have happened to this point is just a lead-up to that final judgment that Christ will bring in person. It's interesting that uh, just in the previous chapter in 18.5, it said that the sins of Babylon had reached to heaven, and perhaps in that situation her iniquity has become full by that time. So I just want to spend the last 15, 10, 15 minutes um, just looking at specific examples of God's providence over nations and rulers. Some of these we can just reference because we're familiar with them. Think of how he took Joseph from this despised brother to the prince of Egypt. Just think of all the twists and turns in Joseph's life to get where he got. Because God wanted Joseph to be there to protect him, to deliver his people. So how did he do that? You know the stories. You know, that, you know they want to kill him. One brother's like, well, let's not kill him, you know. 
If that, if that brother had had his way, he would have died in the pit. He would have died there, and nobody would have heard of Joseph again. But God had other plans for Joseph. And he says, no, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna give, I'm just going to give this one measure of sympathy and compassion to one of the brothers. And Joseph doesn't die. And he just randomly, just randomly happens to be this group of people going to Egypt. Not to, not to this, this group of traders. You know, through Israel came the, the, all the trade of the, of the Middle East. You went from Egypt, you went to Persia, you went to um, Babylon. This, this trade all came through Israel. And this group, instead of going to Babylon, is going to Egypt. And if they'd been going the other way, Joseph would have ended up in Babylon. But instead, Joseph ends up in Egypt, which is where God wants him. And then the whole thing with Potiphar's wife uh, being forgotten in the prison for all these years. All these things. You know the story. All this to get Joseph to be in the position he wanted Joseph in right when the time was right. Think of how King David, the most clear picture of Christ in the Old Testament, Think of all the twists and turns in David's life, even before David's born. I love, this, I love the story of Ruth and Boaz. One of my favorite parts of the book is when it says, you know, you know, Ruth's husband dies. She's a Moabite. She doesn't even belong in the nation of Israel. Ruth's husband dies in Moab, and she and Naomi go back to the land of Israel. And it's barley harvest, and they're looking for food, and God had said if the way we provide for poor people in the land is you don't harvest the edge of your field, and any grain you drop, you leave there, the poor people can come, and get, they, they don't starve to death. But then it says in Ruth, it says, she happened to come to the field that belonged to Boaz. I, I, I love that because it looks so random to us, but it's so intentional on God's side. Why did she happen? Maybe there was more, maybe the grain was taller there. Maybe there was some trees there and she had some shade. Something drew her eyes there, but humanly speaking, she just happened to come. I, I love a Bible that can talk about God's sovereignty and the details of life and yet still, still stick in verses that it just happened this way, that she came into the field of Boaz. She doesn't meet Boaz. David's not born. David's not born. Where does Jesus come from? So all these inner workings of God's providence throughout all of history. And what the Old Testament does for us is it gives us these pictures and behind-the-scenes looks. Once you get into the New Testament and beyond, you start to lose those revelatory explanations for what's happening in history. But the Old Testament establishes this pattern. God's working out some really amazing stuff. And that's what's going on in the ups and downs, the elections, the Republicans, the Democrats, the socialists, the libertarian. That's what's going on. It's God's working out these purposes. And eventually, we're going to have, you know, both Ruth and Boaz, they didn't know the end of the story. They didn't know about David or Jesus, not in the full way that we do. But someday, we'll get the end of our story, and we're going to be able to look back and see that same wow kind of moment that Ruth and Boaz, we see in Ruth and Boaz. Think of how God protected David from Saul. All the ins and outs. You know, what's the chances that he would be best friends with Saul's son? And that Saul's son would love David more than he loved his father and would go out and risk his own life to protect his, his best friend. You know, what are those chances, humanly speaking, that you would get somebody like Jonathan in the king's palace who loved you so much? Or when, when Nabal, the fool, which is what his name means, fool, when Nabal goes out there and refuses to give supplies to David and David's on the warpath, he's like, you know, this jerk, you know, he needs to die. And David's out of control and he's about to do something he's about to regret. Now, what Abigail? Abigail saves David by going out there and saying, my husband is a fool, but here's some, here's some groceries. Take them and don't kill him because you're going to regret it. So God spares David through Abigail. Another great story in David's life in preparation for these things is when Absalom, his own son, because of David's sin, his judgment consequences, Absalom is born. Absalom betrays his own father. He gets all of, almost all of Israel to follow after him. And David's, David's on the run from his own son now. Ahithophel, one of David's most trusted counselors, it says in 2 Samuel 17, 14, 
I think it is. It's, it, that may be the wrong reference, but it's in generally there in 2 Samuel. But it says that, I think it's 1623, it says that when Ahithophel spoke, it was as if God himself had spoken. People trusted his advice and his counsel up to this point. But when Absalom rebels, Ahithophel goes and goes on Absalom's side and betrays David. And he leaves him. Ahithophel says, Absalom, what you need to do is you need to go in and have relations with your father's concubines to really get him ticked off. And then all of Israel will know that David's really mad at you, and then all of Israel will follow you instead of following David. Absalom's like, that sounds, great. That sounds like a great idea. I'll do this. And he does. And then Ahithophel says, well, best way to get your dad is give me 12,000 men. I'm going to go in, and I'm going to, you know, I'll scare everybody, and everybody will run away, and I'll kill David. When he's alone, he's weary, and his friends will desert him, and I'll kill just him. And Absalom likes the idea. He's going to go with it. But he says, let me check with one more guy. Hushai, who had been David's companion, had known about this conspiracy. And David says, you're not much help to me here, but if you go back and act like you're supporting Absalom, then you could be a real help to me. So as Ahithophel has betrayed David, Hushai goes back to Absalom, and he says, Absalom, you know, David's really not the best king. I want to follow you faithfully like I followed your father. So he gets himself embedded into Absalom's trust. And he gives him counsel that's different than Ahithophel's. And he says, Absalom, I think we need to go against David in a forced battle because I don't think Ahithophel's plan is going to work. And speaking of God turning the hearts of kings or want to be pretender kings, it says in 2 Samuel uh, 17, well, let me back up to 15 because this is what David prays. When David finds out about the conspiracy of Ahithophel against him and Absalom, David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That's David's prayer. And just frustrate his plans. So when Ahithophel gives the counsel, Absalom thinks it's a great idea. Hushai says, this is not a good idea. I'll give you a better idea. When Absalom listens to Hushai, he says this. It says, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than the advice of Ahithophel. And this, this little editorial note then says, for the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. All these little editorial comments, we don't get them anymore. But God put enough of them in the Old Testament for us to know that that's what God's doing with the rise and fall of nations and rulers and stolen elections or not stolen elections or insurrections or not insurrections. What's God doing? He's frustrating the plans of the evil. And he's accomplishing his purposes, even though we don't get the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff anymore. But we've got the paradigm set so that we know this is, this is the kind of thing that's going on. Um, so that's the story of, of Hushai. Look over at 1 Kings 22. This is another one of these examples of human arrogance and rebellion against God never being able to get away with it. Here we have our beloved friend Ahab. Um, anybody name Anybody have a, him, that name on their short list for naming their kid when they're coming up with kids' names? I know we all like to use Bible names for our kids. Um, nobody's naming their kid Ahab, right? Um, although I did know a boy named Darius one time. I'm not sure where that came from. But um, uh, 1 Kings 22. So here's Ahab at the end of his life. He doesn't know what's going to be the end of his life. He's on the run. He's in battle. First Kings 22. Let me pick up in verse 29. Um, so Jehoshaphat, uh, the king of Judah, this is by the now that Israel and Judah are split into two kingdoms. Judah is being ruled by Jehoshaphat, and he's with Ahab, and they're fighting together 
against a common enemy. The king of Israel, Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your kingly robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with no one small or great, just fight with the king of Israel. It's going to look like Jehoshaphat, right? Because he's the one wearing his kingly robes. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, surely it's the king of Israel. Therefore they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And it happened when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel that they turned back from pursuing him. Look at this verse. Now a certain man drew a bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he just like turned this, I mean just totally random, just shoots into the sky and he hits Ahab right between the joints in the armor. Not the armor, but the joints in the armor. So Ahab's trying to hide himself in disguise and fool all these people. And God at random allows this random archer to kill Ahab. Strikes in Israel between the joints of his armor. So he turned to the driver and chariot said, turn around and take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. And then it goes on to get kind of gory and disgusting and blood ringing out of the chariots and the dogs like in the blood and all that like God had prophesied. So again, God is in charge of the nations. He superintends everything. And even when those think they've got a plan to beat him, they can't. First Kings 20, um, just a few chapters earlier. Um, here Israel's fighting against Syria. First Kings 20 and verse 23 and Syria doesn't think they can defeat Israel because they have this idea that gods are localized. And they say, in 1 Kings 20, verse 23, the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are the gods of the hills. So that's why they were stronger than us. But if we fight them in the valleys, in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So here's what you should do. And they go on to come up with this plot or this plan so they can fight Israel in the valleys instead of on the hills. And then verse 20, 28 says, Then a man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, Because the Syrians have said, The Lord is God of the hills, but he's not God of the valleys. Therefore I will deliver all the great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And they encamped opposite each other for seven days. So it was on the seventh day the battle was joined. And the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. But the rest fled to Aphek, into the city, and a wall fell on 27,000 of them who were left. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. So again, God's intervention. They say, oh, you think you're, I'm just the God of the, of the hills? Let me show you, I'm the God of the valleys too. Um, so I, we're out of time here. Um, this is a fly-through. Um, just, if I could just recommend one, one book, and that's in your um, handout. Several months ago in a class I was teaching over in Helder Hall, I came across Jonathan Edwards' book, A History of the Work of Redemption. And I had never heard of this before, and I just absolutely love the book. Um, sometimes his prophetic interpretations or his applications are off base. It's pretty obvious. But by and large, you, will, you cannot come away from that book without realizing that God has intended all of human history to make the way for redemption. He takes the Old Testament, and he just shows that everything led up and prefigured and, and showed that Christ was the Messiah. God made everything both biblical history and extra-biblical history, stuff that's not recorded in the Bible. All that was to lay the groundwork so that Christ would have the, the, scenario, the, the perfect setting for him to be born in and how the New Testament worked that out. And he goes right from the New Testament pages right into the history outside the Bible, the, the history after the New Testament, and just shows how all the workings of history are working together 
to accomplish God's purposes. And if you get a chance, you know, there's the information on that is there. But this is a book that Edwards longed to write. He wanted to turn into like a seven-volume set. He turned down the presidency of Princeton because he was afraid. He was about to turn down the presidency of Princeton because he wanted to write this book. Uh, but then he died from a smallpox inoculation like one month in. So he never got a chance to write the book. His son took some of his sermons and put together in this book. But I, I highly recommend that. If It's not a hard read, but it just really opens your eyes up to just a fresh way to look at the Old, old and New Testaments and really kind of capture some of the themes that we talked about this morning. So let's pray. Lord, it's been a, a whirlwind this morning, a lot to cover. And I trust that some of what we talked about was helpful and, and encouraging to help us to see your plan and purposes for history. We, we confess that we are so often like the Israelites, looking at the, the giants around us, whether they're in the land or whether they're in um, the desert. Where is God going to get us the food? Where is God going to get us the water? You brought us out here to kill us. That is our perspective. We have such a small, limited, this world perspective. And I pray that this morning might have just stretched our mind just a little bit to give us that higher perspective, your complete sovereignty and control over all of creation, all the nations accomplishing your plan and your purposes until the end of the age. We ask this in the name of Jesus.